This is KAB Antonio Bay. Stevie Wayne here. And let me be the first to wish Antonio Bay a happy birthday. We're 100 years old today. And keep a watch out for that fog bank heading in from the east. 100 years ago, between midnight and one, something unknown came out of the fog. Now it has returned. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. Welcome. This is KAB Radio 1340 here in Antonio Bay. Um, Stevie can't make it today. She's a little tied up and uh, stuck on the top of the roof of the, the lighthouse. So it's your it's your boys, John and Quinn here to talk uh, another episode of the lo- much anticipated John Carpenter watch series. Unfortunately, we don't have any uh, Curtis today. He's quite tied up with uh, some of his uh, ap- academic stuff. So I'm here today, thankfully, with Quinn to chat this movie. Uh, how's it going, Quinn? I know you've had kind of a crazy week, um, but hopefully I know you got a new laptop. You're coming into us HD, crystal clear. I can see like everything on your face now. You know, it's like when you get the like, glasses for the first time, you're like, whoa, I can see like everything's so detailed. How's it going? Good, man. Good, good. Yeah. Like John said, pretty crazy week. Um, but uh when there's downs, there's always ups. I did get a new MacBook, so I'm super happy about that. It's like way different, way better. Uh, good analogy, by the way, with the glasses, because it's super, super true. It's like going from VHS to uh, 4K Blu-ray on this. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. Big, big diff, big diff. So yeah, yeah. No kidding. Cool, cool. And yeah, and as, as mentioned, Curtis uh, can't be here today, but he was uh, fortunate enough. He wasn't able to watch the movie this week, so um, he doesn't have comments on that, but he did watch some stuff, so he left some comments on on what he watched. So once we get to our what we watched uh, near the middle of the episode, we'll uh, we'll just run through his notes. Um, he did have a question about the movie for us, and I'm happy to answer that one, so we'll get into it. Um, yeah, myself today, it's uh, beautiful. It's January 15th. Oh, we got the cat in the camera, too. Jay- <laughs> What's your cat's name? This this one's Sade, like the singer. Oh, nice. Oh, beautiful yeah. gray cat. I love the gray cats with like the green sort she, of like light, light eyes. Yeah, she's a troublemaker and then she'll just sleep all day shortly and then she'll be a troublemaker tonight, you know? Yeah, that's how that's how it goes. Yep. Uh, yeah, yeah. And so uh, today it's a beautiful uh, January 15th. It's pretty cold here in Ottawa. We're finally getting pretty frigid weather um, in my... Uh, dingy apartment are like i'm looking at my patio door and it's like caked with ice like it just freezes up all the time and i can't even open it i tried to go outside yesterday so i'm gonna have to wait a week to probably get out there so that's ah, okay i don't need anything on the patio um otherwise uh we're getting into it today so of course we're talking the 1980 film the fog uh previously on our watch week series um we were here we talked uh about elvis that was the made for tv movie uh by john carpenter and this one actually of course, um, sort of the development of this movie actually started uh, shortly after the release of Assault on Precinct 13. So um, Carpenter and Hill, as, as we had talked about on that episode, where they had released the movie for film festivals in Europe, and it sort of created a bit of a buzz. Uh, finally, when it kind of released stateside, it had a little bit more popularity afterwards. But Carpenter and Hill spent um, some time in Europe. Uh, during the festival release and there was one day where him and, and deborah hill were were visiting stonehenge and he remembered staring out and seeing a bunch of kind of eerie fog kind of rolling in and uh, carpenter was really influenced by his time there and he was also influenced by a, a little known british film called the uh, trollenberg terror which famously features this sort of monster that lurks within the clouds and he was kind of influenced also by in california there's this actual real life wrecking of a ship called uh, the deliberate shipwreck and plundering of a ship called the frolic uh, which took place in the 19th century so 
a little bit of that, a little bit of his own kind of personal experience in, in kind of the foggy highlands and a little bit of um, some film inspiration as well, too. So this sort of started, the genesis of that started then. Um, of course, for this film, it's produced by Avco Embassy. Um, current producer actually said a two-film deal. So this one and the next one we're going to watch, Escape from New York, are both uh, produced by Avco Embassy. Uh, this film was given a surprisingly low budget, $1 million, um, despite its low budget, kind of just like with Assault on Precinct 13, it's shot uh, 235.1 in anamorphic. So it, it looks, it gives it quite a good sense of scale. We're going to talk about the visuals of this movie. Like I'm I'm personally quite a big fan of how this movie looks and its aesthetic. And, it, and you know, being filmed that way certainly is a bit of a carpenter style. And he's well known for, you know, shooting his films in these sort of gorgeous and sorry, gorgeous anamorphic uh, lens, sort of these beautiful wide shots, um, you know, giving it, giving a shots is his scenes and, and, and visuals more of a sense of scale, making it look more, more than it is. Um, of course, this was filmed. Uh, a lot of this was filmed in Hollywood and some of it was also filmed on location um, in California. Um, actually famously when Carpenter shot this film, uh, he was actually pretty unsatisfied with the red cut, rough, rough cut of this movie. And he ended up, actually adding in some new scenes. So that whole, we're going to get into the beginning of this film with that uh, John Houseman little vignette, little short story. That was, that was actually filmed afterwards and added into the movie. Uh, he also filled some other little grisly scenes to kind of give the film a little bit more, more to it because this came out at a time, I think this was the same year as Friday the 13th. So this was a year when sort of the slasher genre was, was really starting to kick off and, and movies, horror movies in the 80s started to get a little bit more, a little bit nastier, a little bit gorier, really pushing sort of the R rating scale. A lot of those famous movies, especially like those in the, uh, in the Friday the 13th series, they're the, half of those movies. Some of them have like half their stuff just cut off because, like, especially some of those later like Friday sequels where you're just they're just cutting away when everything's happening. But then if you watch the the rough footage, you're like, oh my god, no wonder they cut it. It looks pretty uh pretty gruesome. Um, but this one by 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 that scale is a little bit tamer. Um, and when the, when this movie um came out, well, we'll get into release a little bit, but I want to talk about the cast because this movie I think probably has um maybe like the biggest who's who of like Carpenter cast. Cause like I, I love watching Carpenter's movies. Cause like you're seeing the same names and people over and over again. So, you know, famously Adrian Barbeau, she's sort of the main character here playing Stevie way in the radio host. Uh, of course, at the time she was Carpenter's real life wife. And she also was, in, was playing Sophie, the sort of a, uh, I guess, drunk lesbian and someone's watching me and uh, she's back in this one. And she's also in a few of the other movies that he released. Uh, God King Tom Atkins, who like I'm not really into Tom Atkins, but like people, there's people out there in the horror community who like love this guy. He's sort of like oh, a, he gives off like divorced science teacher like energy. Like he's like this like <laughs> unintentional sex symbol. Like in all his movies, he's like getting laid and like scoring like chicks way out of you know quote unquote his league. But he's like actually kind of an affable guy. So you can kind of see the charm with him. He's like a very like uh, unassuming kind of affable. He's like a C plus Harrison Ford, I guess, but uh, he plays, uh, he, he's, he's in this playing Nick Castle and he's also in some of the other Carpenter slash Carpenter produced stuff like Halloween three and uh, escape from New York. And uh, Jamie Lee Curtis is back in this one too. Of course, she was the main star in Halloween and this one, she plays Elizabeth. Uh, she said she was really excited to be in this movie. And she said like, that's what I love about John. He's letting me explore different aspects of myself. I'm spoiled rotten now. My next director is almost certainly going to be a letdown. Um, and she plays in this movie. There's also a lot a lot of other great supporting cast members. Hal Holbrook, who plays Father Malone. And I was actually thinking about it. Him, uh, Tom Atkins, and Adrian Barbeau are all in Creepshow. They're actually, uh, I think, uh, 
Holbrook and, and Barbeau, they're like the kind of the spat married couple in, in uh, Creepshow, the one, the nagging way. She's like, come on, what are you doing? She's like drunk at the party. And then uh, Atkins is the dad, like the, in the narrative section, the beginning and end of the film, the, like the horrible dad who gets his come up. And so, and there's also a lot of kind of a carpenter who's, who's uh, George Buckflower, who's uh, who was at Halloween, I think is one of the police officers. He plays uh, Tommy Wallace. Uh, famously, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis's mom, Janet Leigh, who we talked about on the, um, the Psycho episode, uh, she's in this. She plays... Uh, uh, Mrs. Williams in this um, right. certainly looks a little, quite a bit older. And Nancy Loomis, who was Annie in Halloween, plays Sandy. Also, like the names that pop up here, it's like again, classic Carpenter, where he's like using real names or reusing names from like other people. So we have like uh, the character Dan O'Bannon, which is obviously named after, you know, the his co collaborator on Dark Star. Uh, Nick yeah. Castle, who was the actor who played. Uh, the Shape, Michael Myers, but also helped uh, would later co-write Escape. Of course, Tommy Wallace named after uh, Tommy Lee Wallace. He's a collaborator with Carpenter, producer, director, and all that. The score in this, the music, again, is classic Carpenter. It's a lot of great synths. And I think this is kind of an, a bit of an underrated score. Carpenter himself considers it one of his better ones. Um, it, it feels very influenced, I think, by Halloween. So he's sort of the main score, uh, the main theme. Uh, but it, it adds for, for some great mood. Um, so anything that you want to mention about sort of like the, the kind of the structure of the film before we sort of get into uh, the details? Because I mean, we'll, we'll talk about it, kind of what we think about it. But I went into this. I've never seen The Fog. I know there is a, a remake that came out of it. I've, I had no fog. I was fogless. I came to this very empty, uh, but I had a good experience. So what did you think? Yeah, um, I had seen The Fog for the first time probably about a year or two ago. I had watched this documentary called, I'm probably going to reference this documentary quite a bit on this podcast, sure. um, but uh, In Search of Darkness. I think, I've, I think we've talked about it before, um, but it's like a four and a half hour documentary about 80s horror movies. And they interview like, they interview Tom Atkins, they interview Nick Castle, they interview John Carpenter, all... Oh wow! Um, uh, uh, yeah, you got to see it. I, I actually have part two. I could lend it to you, but they're both on Shutter. And uh, anyway, so that's where I heard about the fog. I had never even heard of it. And uh, uh, John Carpenter talks about how how much of a pain in the ass this movie was to make, and how he was <laughs> like, he didn't regret making it, but he was like, we would get all the fog set up. We had all the fog machines. And like one gust of wind would just take the whole yeah. shot. just out of the shot. So he's like, had to redo it. And he's just like, there's such a tedious pain in the ass. He's like, I'll never do that again. But um, yeah, super, oh man, super cool movie. Super cool. Just the atmosphere of it. And like, I, I so happen to be, I, I like Tom Atkins. I think he's great. And I think uh, um, Jamie Lee Curtis is awesome in this too. So I think overall, uh, really cool movie. And I agree with you. Really cool uh definitely a really cool score like one of uh one of carpenter's best in scores for sure yeah and i think like I, i'm cool that you brought up that documentary because you know talked about his process making this film because like uh even carpenter himself when this movie came out um he kind of talked about it in kind of a disparaging tone i mean famously he reshot it and but he he called it like a minor horror classic but it's certainly like not one of his favorite movies and that's sort of why this movie was able to be remade in 2005 he kind of gave the 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 go-ahead to remake it uh, yep. But it's kind of interesting that he's so kind of down on this movie because there's like a when I was researching this movie and after watching it and reading reviews and some and some commentary, there's a lot of people that like they think this is like 
So there's a, there's like a there's a lot of fog heads out there like there's people who are like this is his best movie or there's people there's a lot of people who are like this is like easily like a top five Carpenter movie and yeah. I'm I'm not sure I would totally disagree with that after watching this I but we'll get into it so of course this movie starts off uh, with this I think like a really good creepy opening that I think does a good job at sort of setting the tone of this film with this sort of uh, and it also ends up of course tying in narratively to the movie because I was kind of like what well, this scene kind of feels a little bit out of place but then of course you find out later the little boy Stevie's son was actually there it's like oh Mr. Uh, Matchin was telling the ghost stories or whatever so you're like oh, okay that's how it connects but um, it's the eve of the 100th anniversary of this coastal town of Antonio Bay it's in Northern California it kind of feels like obviously it's inspired by England it kind of feels like it's off like the coast of like England or Ireland like, it's so green and it's always yeah. beautiful cliffside it feels very um it has that sort of like a uh, style to it but um it, it's the eve of the 100th anniversary of this town called antonio bay and uh mr matching played by uh, the great john houseman he's telling this creepy ghost story to these children on the beach and one of the stories that he's sharing is about this uh local ship that you know crashed against rocks and all the that caused all the crew to drown and i think this makes for a really good spooky opener like i think this movie overall has this really good like campfire ghost story sort of tone to it and uh, again this is sort of it does a really great job at like sort of telling you it's it's giving you exposition and it's sort of foreshadowing what we're going to learn about sort of the story but it's 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 doing a really great job at kind of dropping in breadcrumbs we're getting this sort of character who does no real other significance to the story like it's played by a pretty notable uh, actor himself too um giving this sort of narrative intro and that's not not unlike carpenter like he does a lot of in a lot of his films gives sort of these like exposition intros or narratives to start the film to kind of uh, set the stage for everything um and i think it makes for a really good opener and then we get of course a great uh, sort of montage of scenes showing the town like different spots of the town like parking lots and and we get that of course from the from the view of this sort of lighthouse we get that big wide shot showing the whole of of antonio bay and uh, we see that creepy things are kind of happening uh we hear weird noises happening. There's like a guy, there's like a guy, like a, a grocery clerk, like cleaning the floor and then like crap's happening. Um, and it's a, it's a great way of slow, kind of slow burn um, setting the scene of, of everything to come. And we start to meet, of course, all the characters of the film because there's sort of a whole series of sort of characters in this that we sort of jump back and forth between. And then eventually it all kind of ties in together at the end, uh, more or less. But we see, of course, we meet uh, Father Malone, Hal Holbrook, who's this sort of, I was getting like serious Midnight Mass vibes. I'm like, oh, is this going to be like a like a Midnight Mass uh, Salem's Lot type story? Because we got like the the priest who's sort of like uh, finishing up at the church and, the, and, and, his, and the staff who's leaving. And uh, while he's there, all of a sudden, when the clock hits midnight, of course, that's when all the kind of paranormal stuff are happening around town. Um, there's like this kind of big noise and this big brick pops out and falls out on this table. He looks back and there's this creepy book uh, that's in a little chest, I guess, in, inside the walls of the uh, of the church. Um, he discovers that this is actually um, his grandfather's diary. And, and we're going to find out later when we meet some of the other characters uh, that this little book is actually telling you sort of the true story of the origin of the town because like everyone's excited about this big festival 100th anniversary of antonio bay kind of the sleepy town again kind of not unlike midnight mass with that sort of small island town with um you know a very very small kind of coterie of, of notable residents um in this case uh we find out that um this whole town was founded by these these six founders which includes uh, father malone his grandfather they famously sank this ship the elizabeth dane and and so that uh, they were able to sort of plunder the gold from the ship 
um, because the one of the the, sh the the ship, I guess the ship captain or or one of the people um, wanted them to kind of establish a colony together, and they didn't. They kind of double crossed them. And they stole the money. So um, that sort of I think sort of sets the real kind of uh, theme of this movie. It's sort of and and I think like I was thinking about other Carpenter movies too, right? Because like um, Assault on Precinct 13, Halloween, all these films have sort of this sort of theme of like betrayal or sort of some kind of hidden secret from the past coming to to rot or or, or come come to root like i think assault on precinct 13 is sort of you know about these criminals who've been imprisoned and sort of been mistreated in this prison who have broken out and now they're coming to seek revenge on the cops who've wronged them you know they've had no involvement whatsoever but they're there and they're sort of caught in the crossfire uh, same thing with halloween with this past trauma this you know psychopath who's now escaped and come back bringing the trauma back with them to infect this town and then we get this again with the fog with this sort of uh betrayal coming in as this sort of curse with these uh foggy creatures but we meet all sorts of different residents in this town of course we're introduced uh to uh elizabeth and nick so nick is is of course tom atkins he's driving down this road and then uh gets stopped by jamie lee curtis who's there uh she's a i think what what is she she's like uh traveling across like the northwest coast of i guess she's heading to vancouver that's what she keeps saying she's like i'm going to vancouver and uh i really like the relationship it's funny because like i feel like now if this came out like people would be freaking out there's like an obvious like age gap here like i think jamie lee curtis has got to be like what like 21 or 20 and like tom atkins looks solidly like 40 and they're just like yeah. but i love i love their kind of like um dynamic together because like of course they're driving when he picks her up and then all of a sudden the clock hits midnight and there's like a big crash like the window shatters on their car and they're like whoa that's weird and uh they go they go back to his place and they bang i love it just like comes back and they've already slept together but it's it's it's, it's sort of nonchalant and like um you know despite that sort of gap between them there's not really any weird energy there's nothing predatory it feels very natural um she's quite uh charming and she there's a little bit of kind of funny like kind of innuendo dialogue where she's like oh like you're like the you're like the 13th person I've like come across or whatever he's like and he's like oh I'm 13th and there's a lot of kind of fun little back and forth there and um surprisingly like Jamie Lloyd Curtis isn't really like the star here like I mean she's yeah. a main character in the story but she's not really like the main uh figure of this um but I love Tom Atkins though like I think he brings like a really fun energy I wrote in the notes like if this movie came out now he'd be played by like someone way too beautiful like Patrick Wilson or like Ethan Hawke if this was like 2004 <laughs> or something like he'd be played by some like huge Hollywood celebrity but um I I think that's what's really charming about him and, and sort of the, his choices because he's he does give out that sort of like every man type of uh, energy um sort of what we see now with like David Harbour like Stranger Things kind of gives like a regular guy charm which I think is, is kind of appreciated that's right yeah. I do. Uh, I have to say my absolute favorite line in the movie is when she gets in the car and she looks at him and she's like are you weird? Yeah. <laughs> Are you weird? <laughs> it's, oh, I love that. Yeah. It's also I, something that was, it was interesting to me too. The ship that crashed that sort of sets off the chain of this curse on this town is called the Elizabeth Dane. And, you know, uh, her name is Elizabeth in this. So I wondered if there was some sort of weird connection, but I, I, I couldn't find anything in the story or the way the movie develops that may, maybe allude to that, but maybe it's just a coincidence. But I thought that was sort of an, an interesting case. Uh, to have that in the film. Of course, we also meet um, sort of, I would say our main character in this film played by Adrian Barbeau, um, say, uh, 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 who's this sort of radio host, I guess. I guess the story we find out the background about her is that uh, uh, she's uh, sort of been, um, I guess, come, came to this town. We, we, we learned that she has a son and uh, presumably something happened because we see a picture with like her and this mysterious figure and her son. So we, I guess we assume that she used to be married or maybe something had happened or, but nonetheless uh, we see that uh, 
Stevie, her name, as she she comes to this town and she's it's cool because she's in this sort of lighthouse. It's like it, it double functions as like a lighthouse and a radio station. It's like what an interesting spot uh, for a radio station. And uh, she's she's on these like phone calls talking to this uh, this guy who works as like a weatherman. I think Dan O'Bannon, the Dan Bannon, the, the weatherman. And he's like yeah. hitting on her. He's like, hey, when are you going to ask me out? He's like, she's like, you're just a voice on the phone. I, I really loved her character in this film. I thought. Um, you know, I liked her and, and someone's watching like she really stole the, the show at times. But in this movie, I think this movie, she really carries it because it, most of the focus of this is is on her for a lot of the movie. And uh, um, I think she's just really funny. Like uh, it was kind of cool, again, to see like, a, uh, you know, to, to, to focus so much on on this on this sort of single mom, this woman in this film who's like really like, um, you know, in control of things like she's she's this like sultry radio voice, like calling like, welcome to KB radio. And she's sort of this like character that links sort of everyone together because she's you know reporting on the radio telling about events that are happening everyone's listening in um it's kind of of a warrior's it's kind of a warrior sort of thing right yeah exactly yeah yeah and i think we see a lot of um of course what's cool about this one is that this was the script i believe the script credit like the writing credit was solely on deborah hill so i think she had the full writing credit on this and i think you see a lot of sort of her style as a writer on this film too like with it reminded me so much of this reminds me of like halloween with just like the characters and the dialogue and like the women in this are so like you know confident and like speak for themselves and there's a lot of women that in this movie too um which makes it fun to watch and uh, of course we find out of course she's this radio person calling into this weatherman this weatherman's like oh yeah there's this weird fog coming in crazy right and so she reports that, you know, there's this fog coming in across the ship that's in the harbor. You know, she gives a little shout out to the men on the ship. And I love the camera pans to this. Like, I, I love the way it's framed, too, because, like, we see all these wide, beautiful wide shots that we're going to talk about. But when we're on the ship, it's quite claustrophobic, this, like, kind of tight light. Uh, they're all kind of framed in the same kind of, like, 4-3 sort, of sh- uh, sort of framing. Uh, but, you know, they're all in this, these guys on the ship. They're super horny. Like, oh, my God, I love her. Like, she's like, you know, they only know her through a voice. But, uh of course, we get the creepy fog starting to grow, to roll in, and uh, that's when all of a sudden we we get a kind of a first experience of the weird shit that happens because uh, it's a really good kind of scare. I think it's probably the the, the goriest part of the movie too, where the the guys come out of the ship and they're on the deck and you see like the foreboding like pirates like emerging from the and then they get like all oh, they they attack them with their axes and hooks and stuff like that. And uh, of course, the film's not too bloody though. Famously, Carper, Carpenter wanted to actually get a PG thirteen rating for this movie. So like, if you watch the kills, they're not there's not excessive blood like shooting out it's not like uh on the opposite side it's not like tarantino right we're not getting like hydro pump blood shooting out it's just uh these kind of close cuts like things going into heads and body and and then stuff like that but otherwise not too uh bloody but nonetheless this movie did get an r rating so uh i kind of wish he just like embraced it and went like full gore but nonetheless we find out the ship has been you know taken over by these monsters and then we get a great scene where um again uh elizabeth and and um, and Nick, who've had sex, they're just hanging out in bed. Uh, you hear the the big knock on the door, and we're going to see a lot of that with these like kind of creepy ghouls, these revenants. They just they like they like to knock on the door. They like to be polite. They don't just break in. They they let you know they're coming. And either you, know, you see the one knocking on the door, and he uh, we see um, Tom Atkins' character goes up to the door to look, but uh, they kind of disappear. And uh, a lot of those we see the fog kind of rolls back in out to the sea, and and, and it kind of goes away. Um, but of course, the next day uh, we see we, we meet some more characters as well too. Um, we find, when we find out about sort of the curse of this uh, town, when we find out through the Father Malone, we meet uh, two important people, uh, Mrs. Williams, who I believe her husband is the mayor, or like she's like one one of the important people in this town. Uh, and and we see her assistant uh, Sandy, who's played by Nancy Lewis. I love Nancy Loomis in this. Like I, I liked her in Halloween too because she's you know pretty snarky and has some like good kind of like 
pointed comments and stuff like that. But I, she's like sort of like it's this weird, like almost like Smithers to like Mr. Burns dynamic. It's sort of <laughs> funny to watch them. Like I'm like, why are you even like still following this lady around? Like I guess she's like her assistant or sort of uh, like intern or something. But I just love her dynamic. You know, this old cranky old lady who's driving around, and this her younger assistant who's just like whatever. It's just it's it makes for a really fun dynamic. Um, but they meet up with Father Malone. They learn the story of the town. But like you know, they say like, well, we're planning this big celebration. Everyone's coming for this big kind of fair that's going on. Um, you know, we don't really want to like, you know, scale a town and, uh, you know, they try to kind of keep it under wraps again, the theme of, uh, sort of keeping secrets under, and, uh, the next morning, of course, we meet Stevie's son, he's out running on the beach and it's a great moment where he sees this coin on this, this rock, this coin on this rock and the tide comes in and then it's like a, a plank of wood. I was like wondering what was going on. I was like, what, what is happening? But, um, he finds this old piece of like shipwrecked wood. Uh, gives it to his mom and his mom takes it go, going to the radio station I mean probably like god the best maybe the best visual scene is her going down that staircase to the lighthouse um, we get a lot of really great kind of beautiful like again the uh, the the anamorphic shots um, of course Dean Cundy who's like a famous cinematographer worked with Carpenter on you know Halloween Halloween 2 many of his other films is on this and this is like one of his best shot films i think carpenter and him do a great job and i think like visually this is a bit of a step up from halloween i mean halloween's great it looks great uh, but it's of course done in these sort of like residential suburban you know filmed in like pasadena california like all these big kind of houses uh, and you know it does a lot with this sort of material there but this one we're getting these beautiful like mountain cliffside views like even just her um the scene where we see her beach house is, is so gorgeous and and when she's driving it up those winding trails to the lighthouse like we're we're following the car up this like empty road it's it just looks really great like i thought this film had some great shots especially with the fog too coming in off the beach so we get so many great perspectives of like the lighthouse looking in on the bay um the individual houses along the coast and then sort of like the old city downtown um what did you think of sort of the way this is shot like the way it looks visually because i think it's quite striking yeah no i agree i think definitely one of his best like best efforts for sure i the fog comes down to atmosphere like yeah. the first the first time i watched it i was like I didn't get what I was expecting out of it, but I was still like, I still loved it. You know what I mean? Like I, I was expecting it to be scarier just mm -hmm. like, okay. Like obviously the, the poster is like one of my favorite Carpenter yeah. posters. It's like so cool. It's just like so classic, like eighties. It would definitely make you want to rent it, you know, back in the day, if you saw it on tape or whatever, but um yeah i was expecting it to be like a little bit scarier but then again like how scarier carpenter's movies right like we we take a look at like i mean the thing obviously um you know halloween and whatever but i was expecting it to be a little bit more sort of like like you said before like a little bit a little bit more gory a little bit more gruesome but like yeah it, it's it all comes down to like it, it's a great thriller that that because of the fog and the wide shots and obviously the the great cinematography it's like it the atmosphere kind of speaks for itself it's almost mm -hmm. like et like et's i watched et the other day well not the other day but the other week i guess and uh again has such great shots and stuff like that but it's all about atmosphere and it's not really scary it just kind of like brings you in it captures captures your attention so i think i think the shots in this film are they're amazing. And, and I would say definitely some of, some of his best. Um, 
on his resume, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Like the scene where she's going down the lighthouse, that's actually the point raised lighthouse in real life. It's about, I was doing some research about 313 steps. Uh, the stairs go down about 900 feet, the equivalent of 25 stories. You get this huge wide shot of her kind of opening the gate to go down. And like, that's like a true, like corny, every frame of painting type. Uh, if there was like a, a, I would love to see like this on, on the 4k resto. Cause like I watched this, uh, I think I watched like a pretty good, like 1080 uh, rip of this, but I would love to see this like 4k on a big screen, like on the, at the cinema. Cause like, this would look quite good. Like, I think this has some great shots. And I love that you talked about sort of the, the horror tone of this, because we get that course that sort of this whole movie has this just sort of a campfire story feel to it. Like it's very sleepy, very, you know, foreboding, but not overtly terrifying. A lot of it is really, again, like, you know, like the title suggests, like in the shadows, hidden away. We're not yeah. seeing everything that's going on. A lot of stuff happens off screen. Um, I love how low stakes this movie is like, you know, Halloween. Again, Halloween is another movie that like is somewhat kind of low stakes too, because not a lot happens. But I mean, a lot happens to sort of the characters in the movie. You know, there are people die. We get this great scene in the opener with the shipwreck and, and you know these pirates coming on board to massacre everyone. But other than that, there's not really that much uh, you know kills in this movie. And even like the the ghouls, the revenants themselves, they're not that much of an evil, a dangerous presence. Like they are dangerous, but like they knock before they enter. They're kind of slow lumbering. They're only in the fog. So if you can avoid the fog, you can avoid them. I just love, I actually really appreciate how low stakes it was. I was like, when I got out of the movie, I was just like, you know, like there wasn't really that much like gore or kills. It was sort of just like, it's, again, it feels like a, like a campfire story. It feels like kind of like a little bit more, not, not like juvenile, like for a younger audience, but it has like a, a, a markedly different tone that I actually yeah. kind of appreciate it. Like, I love how Halloween is sort of this folklore story. It works as a slasher, but it's sort of like a folklore story about like, um, yeah evil as like a, a presence in, in, in reality and and sort of within our suburban safe suburban world and this one is sort of this like you know foreboding ghost story of this town this cursed town and you know it, the, the, when it ends it's gone but I, I really love that I love and that's why I just yeah. love Carpenter as a genre filmmaker I love how he's able to just take material different types of horror material and, and different types of other genre material and work it around and make it great and we're, you know we're going to get that coming into Escape from New York next John Carpenter. So this is a widely different film. And then after that, The Thing, which is even more widely different, like could have more widely different films all from the same director and with a lot of the same uh, visual crew too as well. Um, yeah. And so of course, moving on, we find out um, um, when Stevie brings this plank of wood to the radio station, uh, she started to like, get the tape set up. She, I love this scene too, because she's listening to this like, like compilation mashup tape of like little radio jingles. It's like, it is like KB Radio 1340. It like, it's just really fun. I love like radio jingles. So she's listening, listening, and she puts the plank down on this like stack of tapes that she has set up. And it's a really great little um, creepy scene because we see like water leaking out of it and pouring around everywhere. And it, it fries the machine and it catches on fire. And we hear it's giving this creepy, um, oh yeah, six must die. So it's again going, hearkening back to that story we heard from Father Malone of these sort of six men who are responsible for this betrayal of the shipwreck. Okay, I, and then, thought, I thought it was a great opening, by the way, too. Like yeah. just, just that campfire scene at the start, like I think really sets the tone for the movie as well. Yeah, and then we what they also do is they, they reference the Hanging Albatross, which is a, a nod to Samuel Coleridge's Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, which I think, I'll, you know, this film borrows a lot of its sort of mood and setting sort of directly from that that famous story of sort of this, 
wedding guests, like sharing this, this famous, you know, curse that's been afflicted on him. And, you know, I got to share this with you, this horrible curse of this uh, little, I love that little nod to that. And, and there's, a, there's a lot of that sort of style of mood in this film, uh, much like something like the, uh, the lighthouse as well, too. And uh, of course we get a great scene where Nick and Elizabeth, they go to visit the trawler. Cause I guess Nick is involved with them or he works with them. And he's like, you know, the ship's lost at sea. We have to find out what's going on. They go there. And it's a really great moment on the ship too, because like we get this really, I love, I love in movies when characters get a chance to kind of share these sort of like soliloquies or personal stories that aren't really directly related to the events of the movie, but make you want to kind of learn more. Like in Halloween, I was really drawn to when we watched, we watched it, uh, the scene of the graveyard where the sort of the graveyard keeper is like talking about this, like, oh yeah, I used to live in this town where this like horrible thing happened. He kind of goes on a bit and gets cut off. And I'm like, like this seems like an actual really kind of relevant story to the the sort of the theme of the movie. It's not really related. And we get this again too, where, uh, you know, um, Nick sort of sharing this sort of story about finding this sort of coin and, and it's a little kind of, again, it's a little kind of ghost story. He's sharing personally with Elizabeth hearkening to the, the beginning of this film. And it, and it adds for, it adds for a great, uh, you know, sort of jump scare of the movie where the corpse falls out of the, the out of the, uh, a locker behind them and you know Jing Lee Curtis the scream queen so we get that great scream as well when it when it falls on her I'm like there it is I was like Leo pointing and uh once upon a time in Hollywood I was like that yeah. that's it that's the moment and uh they go back to um um this doctor's office with this corpse because they're they're investigating it and you know Nick's talking to the doctor and he's like this this corpse couldn't have just died yesterday it, it's been so it's, it seems like it's been submerged in water for for months like it has significant damage and while it's going on we see the corpse kind of get up and and it's lumbering over to to elizabeth and they come in you know it falls and she screams and we see a kind of carbon number on on the floor um relating again to sort of this curse that they're they're trying to absolve and anyway so when that happens of course the celebrations are happening in the town in the evening but that's sort of when it hits midnight that's when all the creepy stuff happens again the fog starts rolling in and it's a really great moment of horror too because uh um, we get the scene where Stevie calls Dan and he's like, oh, he's like, yeah, the fog's rolling in. He's like kind of nonchalant, but um, really great moment when the fog finally rolls in and, and all around him. And we see like, you know, the monsters knocking on the door, trying to get into him. And, you know, we get some really great light and special effects work, a lot of like really great deep red hues. Like uh, it, it, it's kind of like the opener to like weird science or something. It's like the smokiness and like the reds behind the smoke. I love that little effects it does. And then, you know, Dan, you know, opens the door to see what it is. And it's the, you know, the monsters. And a lot of the kills are like characters opening doors and be like, oh, turning around. Oh yeah, there's nobody here. And then we see like the, the hand <laughs> or whatever come and get them. It's like, keep your eyes focused at all times on, yeah. on what's happening, man. And uh, and we hear Stevie hears him getting killed and, you know, she listens in horror. And of course, I, I love I love how like, you know, we see all these scenes with Stevie. She's like the sultry, like random radio host, always in control. Uh, but the move, I really thought it was a good bit of horror when, you know, she sees what's happening, the fog rolling in and sees the fog is actually reaching her her house where her son and uh, the, the babysitter, Mrs. Cobritz are. And, you know, she's like screaming on like, you know, on the radio. She's like, you know, be carefully hide. And it's, well, adds for a lot of horror. So we see the fog rolls in to her house and it's uh, kind of a little bit of crazy horror. Cause we get the, I, I was like feeling really bad. I'm like, Oh, this old lady's going to get it. We see Mrs. Cobritz in the sun and, you know, the son's like, who's out there? I'm like, granny. And he's like, don't worry. And I'm like, oh no, this granny is going to get, get it. And of course she does. When uh, again, like all these characters, they open the door and they, they turn around and we see the arm of the monster come in and pull her, but it's a real, real great kind of tension building. Cause we see the son who sort of, you know, he knows something's weird, but when she, they hear the radio call of the mom saying like, you know, hide, you know, don't, don't go into the fog. You know, she says like, Oh, go hide in the basement or like lock yourself 
and, and it's a little it's a great moment we see the sun kind of go in the room and close the door and, and hide under the covers and then we see like the monsters then at the door his door like breaking in and like he just doesn't seem that face like we see like someone's like hitting the door and he's kind of like uh and then we still like, got a hook hand like coming in i'd be like all right i see a hook hand i'm out of there like i'm not yeah. sticking around um <laughs> and there's a kind of a race to get there because we see elizabeth and nick are, are racing uh to the beach house they hear they hear um stevie on the radio talking about it so they race over um at this point they're like yes something crazy is going on it has to do with the fog uh they drive over and just in time they nick gets there breaks the window and grabs the kid and they uh, they escape, although they get in the car, another little great bit of horror. They're in the car. They're trying to turn it on and the car is not starting and they're stuck in the mud. And you see like they're all surrounded by the fog. They see the sort of the deep, the monstrous revenants coming in, coming closer and closer. And in pure, you know, pure movie fashion, just in the nick of time, they're able to back up and they back out of the fog and drive away. Um, I love like the fog itself is sort of like a, a villain. Like we see the fog like going up a telephone pole and it cuts the phone lines, goes to this big generator station and cuts all the power to the town. So all the powers out the lines of communication are shot um and it's a it's a it's pretty good for its budget too because like you don't need to do much with the fog you can just have like a, a door frame and just pumping pump, pumping like dry ice under the door frame and you know it's it's sort of like a nod back to like classic kind of gothic uh, cinema and stuff like that too with like dracula where you can sort of materialize into like a fog or a uh, an essence to kind of materialize it's sort of classic horror right there so i i i love that aspect of it and um of course, they, the um, Stevie advises everyone who's in town to head to the church uh, where they're safe and they're sort of up uphill. So I guess they're sort of like the fog can't totally go up there. At least they assume. Uh, but we see it's a great moment where we see uh, Mrs. Williams and Sandy. I like it all. I love all these characters. We see all these different groups of characters and they all kind of meet together. We see Mrs. Williams and Sandy. They're hearing the radio about this like killer fog. At this point, the power is cut out. So everyone in the fair is kind of dispersed. Uh, but they're driving around the town. They have to do all these like three or four point turns because the fog is just like moving in. And I mean, I mean, Stevie could have been like a World War II like uh, navigator because she's just like take Oak, Oak Street, turn right. Oh, and she like she like is able to just say, oh yeah, the fog's that way. It's like due north. I'm like, wow, she's a pretty good. You know, she's working at a late house. She's a pretty good navigator. Like uh, I was pretty impressed. But uh, they all end up going to this church where Father Malone is, and I think he's just sort of like it's like the classic trope of like the disillusioned priest who's just like lost his mice there he's just like oh it's too late the curse he's like drinking or whatever he's just like everyone's like no no we gotta hide so they go to this church and they and they take refuge there as the sort of revenants come in it's like again a little bit of a really a little bit of like um i think romero here too it reminds me a lot of like night of the living dead you know the the kind of survivors hold up in this this place where the which you know which seems safe you know the church is a you know, a famous symbol that feels safe in like in any sort of horror or, or stuff like that, but, you know, actually isn't as safe as they think it is. And um, we find out that um, they're trying to determine where the, you know, the hidden gold is. So they think, okay, if we can give the gold that's been stolen back to this, these monsters, or I guess the sort of the, the main captain of them, Blake, this will end the sort of the curse of what's going on. And they, they find out it's in the walls. So they start to dig in the walls and they find this big, big gaudy, massive, like golden cross and uh, who father Malone takes it. And, and, you know, they take refuge in, in this room. And at the same time, you know, the, the revenants are starting to, to break in and they're trying to hold themselves up kind of like zombies. And at the lighthouse too, Stevie, she's trying to hold herself up too. And I think this is like my favorite sequence where she's at the bottom of the, um, of the lighthouse and sees the door starting to kind of almost, disintegrate or break apart and you know even though even though they knock and all that you're not safe because they're going to come in to get you so she goes upstairs uh, to the main lobby where the radio station is 
and uh she she pops outside and sees them start to come up and it's I, it was it, it really terrifying moment really ten, tense building because we see her like go outside up on the to the roof climbing on to the the right to the top of the lighthouse and nonetheless like we see the monsters like climbing up to get her it's a great bit of horror where you know she's literally holding on to like this little antenna like she could just slip off and die because she's like 30 feet up in the air and we see this like ghoul is trying to climb up the ladder but we see behind her like another ghoul pops up behind her and i generally thought she was gonna die like she gets like i think like a hook to like the shoulder and falls i'm like holy shit they're actually gonna like kill her off in this i'm like wow um but uh thankfully we see father malone goes up to blake with the golden cross and they grab it and there's this little bit of weird kind of fantasy cgi stuff going on where they both grab the cross and they're like oh and then like nick grabs father malone away and they they take the gold cross and and we see the the revenants disappear the fog rolls out and just in the nick of time stevie's about to get like a freaking hook to the face she's like ah and it's a great little bit of horror and 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 it's undone um everything seems fine um, but I, I kind of wonder how fine everything is because, you know, we, see, we saw this fog roll in. Once it rolls out, we hear like this like barking dog that we that we heard earlier, which I think we're supposed to interpret a little bit as like a sign, sign that like everything's OK. The horror is gone. But, you know, I, I wonder, like, how many people like actually died in this town because this fog rolled in and presumably like attacked or killed a lot of people. It's it, there's a lot of kind of left unknown, like the fog disappears as if for good. Uh, we see, you know, Nick, Elizabeth, Andy, uh, Kathy, Sandy, they all leave the church. And Malone is sort of wondering himself, he's like, there was six, like, why not six? Like, why did they spare my life? Because you think Malone thought like they were going to kill him and take his life. He kind of sacrificed himself. But he's like, why, why, why didn't they come back? And then, you know, moments later, we see the fog start to roll in through the door of the church. And he turns around and the whole church pew is filled with Blake and the rest of the revenants. And we see him kind of back up and we see uh, Blake swing the sword to decapitate him. And then the movie ends, a really great ending. It's like, wow, yeah. great Great way to cut, great way to end the film. Um, yeah, this movie, I uh, will, we'll talk about sort of our feelings, but yeah, that's the movie. And it's again, very, very campfire, very slow. I think some people might be a little turned off by a little bit, kind of like how low stakes it is, like how kind of uh, cheap and obviously low budget is it is, but um, nonetheless, a really good visual triumph and uh, some really great moody horror. So this movie came out, um, it was actually supposed to come out um, 1979 in the holiday season, but got pushed to uh, February 1980. This movie was actually a pretty good box office success. Like, as I mentioned, this had about roughly like a $1 million budget, uh, but made, I think 21.3 million uh, domestically um, was kind of mixed reception. Some people weren't super high on it, but, you know, praised sort of the way it was shot with that 235.1 anamorphic widescreen. Again, Carpenter himself called it like a minor horror classic, but wasn't really super enthused by it due to the reshoots and all that. Um, this movie, I think, as time has gone on, has actually kind of become a little bit of a cult classic. I think you had mentioned you have this in your VHS collection. You watched on tape. Um, there's a lot of people out there that, now would actually call this one of Carpenter's better films. In, 20, in the early 2010s, Time Out magazine, they conducted a poll of 100 authors, directors, actors, critics who worked in horror to vote on their top horror films. And The Fog placed number 77. So this movie is quite beloved, even amongst kind of horror aficionados and people who work in horror as being a great uh, being a great work um this has been released on different mediums on vhs laserdisc in the 80s on dvd in 2002 and then recently on blu-ray via shout factory screen factory uh label in 2013 
And that is the fog. And Curtis actually had a question because he said, unfortunately, I didn't have time to watch the fog this week, but I'm really interested to hear if it compares or totally differs from The Mist, uh, Stephen King's 2007 adaptation with the shocking ending. What do you guys think? I haven't seen The Mist. I don't know if you've seen the movie or read the no, book. I, I know haven't. the ending, though. I know the famous yeah. twi- the, the ending of The Mist, which um, knowing the ending of The Mist, Curtis, and I guess anyone out there who wants to kind of hear that comparison, I don't think it really compares. Like, I think, you know, I don't want to spoil too much of the mist, but I know the the mist film ending is quite disturbing. And, you know, even more so than the book itself, it's like a very dark and disturbing ending that kind of leaves you feeling like, you know, emotionally numb. But I think what's cool about this one is, again, like a campfire story. It has kind of a a spooky, fulfilling ending. Um, But this one isn't really like that. It's a little bit more, almost like a happy ending. Because again, it's so low stakes. Like not that many people die. Pretty much all the main cast is virtually unharmed. and we and we can assume, um, despite that little fun little kind of you know cut ending with with a uh, Holbrook presumably getting his head chopped off, that um, it's over now that the curse is done and it's, there's a bit of a resolution. So I, I don't think it necessarily compares to the ending, but I do think there's a little bit of visual similarities. Like I couldn't, I, I would expect that uh, the mist certainly takes a lot of its visual style and influence from the fog. Like I think the fog has had an influence on other movies, certainly movies that deal with like spooky fogs or foreboding like atmospheric pressures like that, I think owe themselves to this movie a little bit. Um, so let's talk about what we thought about this movie. Um, uh, Quinn, what did, what did you give this movie? What were your thoughts? Uh, well, I decided to give this movie a four out of five. Um, overall, I think it was great. When my wife and I watched it for the first time, just a bit over a year ago, I believe, she wasn't crazy about it, but I, I thought it was really cool. I'm a big Jamie Lee Curtis fan. I think that Jamie Lee Curtis and um, John Carpenter did great work together. And I think overall, just atmospherically, I just love it. I think it's super 80s. It's not like, yeah. it's not, it's not too much of like... I don't find it to be too slow or too boring or too much or too little. I just think it's like a nice, like easygoing hangout movie. Like you can be on your phone on this one if you really want to, but like, it's just like an, a really cool eighties movie. And I think it checks all the boxes for me. Like I'm, I'm, I'm an eighties horror nut. So like, I definitely agree with um, the list that people were making. Like I would definitely put it in the top hundred, like, you know, eighties, movies whatever i i think it's overall just a great film um and especially considering what they did with that low budget coming yeah. off of you know halloween and what atkins did in the late 70s and whatever like to make that movie for a million bucks and to pay your cast and 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 like i think it's pretty impressive so overall yeah four out of five great shots great cinematography um a memorable movie that I'll always care for. So yeah. What about you, John? Yeah, I kind of, I went back and forth between sort of a four and a four and a half and I ended up going with a four and a half. Like I think there is, I think there's genuine arguments to make that this is perhaps Carpenter's best film um, or at least one of his better ones. I think certainly so far from what I've seen from Carpenter based on what we've watched for this watch series and what I've seen previously, like this is probably one of my favorite films of his. I think, um, it's cool to watch this visually because this is, I think, a, a big step up from Halloween. I think Carpenter and Cundy, Dean Cundy, like do some really excellent work. I love the visual aspect showing the sort of town and and this, these these big wide scenes showing the beach and the fog itself, how it's filmed and shot. Um, again, I could see why it'd be tricky and a pain in the ass to shoot because it's so practical because it's operating on a low budget. But I think it does a great job with it. Uh, Deborah Hill's script, I think, is really cool in this. It's really tight. It doesn't really, we get a little bit of exposition with this curse and, you know, my father Malone but otherwise it doesn't really do that. It kind of, it moves at a really quick pace. And I love that. I love how it, it doesn't waste a lot of time. It's a very 
you know, uh, I, I don't know how long the film is. I think it's roughly like two hours or, or, or just around there, like time-wise, it, it, it doesn't feel like it, it's too overly long or, or not even, or too short. Um, and I think this is one of the rare films where I think the cast is just perfect. Like every single member of this cast, again, it's fun as sort of a Carpenter fan. Cause it's like a who's who of like, big big actors and also kind of like my, like almost every like supporting minor character in this film is someone you would recognize from like halloween or like escape from new york or even like they live or something like they're just like always like kind of minor people i love that i love i love directors who are, are auteurs who kind of like bring around kind of a crew and cast with them and you know it speaks to their character because pe people want to work with them and collaborate with them and uh yeah i love the cast i love how um low stakes it is again like it's it's very little gore it has a true kind of uh campfire film campfire story aesthetic very few deaths like the ghouls themselves aren't even really that dangerous they're kind of like oh yes yeah, spooky ghouls that try to break in but you could probably just like walk away from them like a, i love that aspect of it it's like a horror that feels scary when you're in the moment but you know still like kind of like with campfire stories a little bit of kind of illogical elements of it that don't make too much sense it sort of like adds this little bit of paranormal spiritualness of it um i think adrian barbo is great she's fantastic in the movie um she carries most of the film i think it's her best performance uh that i've seen and uh, i kind of wish she was more of a bigger star because i think she's she's really great in this and you know carpenter's not high on himself but i think it's solid i think it's a return of form for him especially considering the last two that he did before this that came out uh we got someone's watching me and, and elvis which i like someone's watching me you did too but i think those are both kind of a little bit of a tier below so this is like coming this is kind of going back to halloween this is like a really good follow-up uh uh to carpenter and you know on the downside though i do think there's a little bit of negatives like i think it is again it's a little bit slower a little bit sleepier halloween is certainly like a much more terrifying film i think i would probably go back to halloween over this one but um i do think it's still really good and i can see like contemporaneous audiences like watching this the same year as like you know years following like texas chainsaw and the same year as friday the 13th as films were getting ultra violent and disturbing and you know full of like you know like the um, full of like nudity and everything. And I think someone could watch that and then come to this. It's like, this feels like something from like the sixties or something. Like it feels, it has much more of a classic kind of cinema feel to it. But I think um, coming to it from, from now, uh, from our period of time, it's, you can kind of see like how it feels a lot, a lot more like kind of classic horror. And I, I love that aspect of it. I love films that come out even to more present times today that kind of harken back to that without kind of getting into sort of exploitation tropes and kind of like a lot of nastiness. Um, so I, I dug it a lot. Um, yeah, so let's get into what we watch. And actually, maybe I'll just kick off by reading Curtis's notes first, because he had some notes on a few things he watched. And, uh, and then um, we'll get into what we watched. I know, Quinn, that you didn't get a chance to watch too much, but uh, we'll just get in the swing of things. So Curtis um, watched a few movies um, and some shows uh, this week. The first one he watched was by Abel Ferrar. It's the 90s remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. So I was listening last episode. Great episode, by the way, the Jurassic Park one. And he had talked about he himself had also uh, rewatched the uh, the 70s Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which is the one that I watched uh, two, a couple of weeks ago. Um, so the 90s Body Snatchers, I've actually never seen this one. Um, he said, I was inspired to check this one out after we talked about Invasion of the Body Snatchers a couple of weeks ago. The 1978 version is my favorite. And with Abel Ferrara directing, I thought the 93 one would be awesome too, but no, it just felt really dull. I couldn't get through it. I've heard some really mixed things about this um, 90s Body Snatchers. Have you seen the, the 90s remake of Invasion of Body Snatchers? No? No, I haven't. No. No, but yeah, I've heard kind of some mixed things. So I'd be interested to kind of watch it. Like I think as a director, you know, Abel Ferrara does some like, a lot of his movies are pretty, pretty out there. And, but he's, he has kind of a really wide range of styles from like, 
um more straightforward kind of like action thriller to like you know he's not he dabbles in horror too so he's got a kind of a wide range of them so i'd be i'd be interested to watch that one he also watched the classic gremlins he said i introduced this christmas classic to my girlfriend it was not her favorite as she puts it but we both really enjoyed watching it i noticed something every new every time i return to it in this case uh mr futterman's xenophobia becomes more apparent he says goddamn foreign cars but come on man i take a volkswagen over that silly urban tractor of yours uh, the Dust Bowl, The Saint. Uh, also interesting too how Americanized the grandson of the Chinese seller is. Uh, he even wears a New York Yankees hat and he's totally out of touch with the responsibilities of the Mugwai, not to mention all the silly, goofy white people. Also, it seems ironic how the gremlins attach with and sing along to the, the Seven Dwarves theme song since the dwarves themselves are industrious and organized, whereas the gremlins are chaotic and live lives of leisure. Fun fact, my German bank advisor is called Julia Deagle, referencing the, the the angry, evil Mrs. Deagle. He says, but she's young, she's hot, not like the evil Mrs. Deagle at all. Um, I love Gremlins. <laughs> I rewatched Gremlins uh, last year with a bunch of friends who did like a COVID watch party where we watched it um, through video. And I, I'm a big fan of Gremlins too. I think Gremlins 2 is certainly my canon list, like one of the best films ever made, one of the best sequels ever made. But I really like Gremlins. I love how it, it does a great blend of like, again like spiel has like it's much like um i think poltergeist where people are like how much of it was spielberg's like influence and like because yeah. this movie like the ha- the first half of this movie it feels like you're watching like et or it's like it's like pure spielberg and then it just goes like full of ham like the mom she just like i don't want to spoil all gremlins but the mom is just like goes like pure rambo mode she like starts killing the gremlins i was like holy shit like i forgot how violent it was but yeah, yeah. I, I love that movie it's a great and it's a great christmas movie too because it works that way too so yeah gremlins is a great one we're gonna have to talk about the gremlin series because those are some absolutely ah, those are some awesome movies and yeah. um he also watched, uh, I think you had, because for folks, if you didn't listen to it, the last episode of Jurassic Park was a great one, talking uh, it with our guest Grant, and uh, they talked, uh, I think Curtis had mentioned there's a Netflix show called Jurassic World Camp Cretaceous, which I believe is like a cartoon, like a kid show. Uh, he had said, I'm still obsessed with dinosaurs after Jurassic Park last week, so I took a peek at the Netflix children's series Camp Cretaceous, which has the awful Jurassic World stamp on it. It's all CGI and surprisingly dark for a kid show with lots of folks getting devoured. But ultimately the best thing that Jurassic World is, it's ultimately the best thing Jurassic World has put out so far. The setup is unrealistic. Kids win a video game and get sent to a dinosaur camp on Isla Nubar. Why did everyone forget what happened in John Hammond's OG park and the lost world? Uh, but I think it accurately, yeah, it's like, oh yeah, come to this island. It's totally safe now. Yeah. It's no, worth no waivers it. sign. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't think I would send my kids on a field trip to fucking Costa Rican dinosaur land. Yeah, yeah, it's just me. Uh, I, but he says, I think it accurately depicts sort of teenage behavior and some of it's quite fun. So he was sort of a little bit, uh, he thought it was pretty satisfying. And then finally he watched um, a horror on Shudder called Eyes of Fire from 1983. He said, Shudder has a bunch of obscure folk horror released lately, and this is one of them. Also featured in the new folk horror documentary, Woodlands Dark and Days Bewitched, also on Shudder. Uh, this movie is so weird that I'm not even sure how to review it. He said, it's about a team of American colonialists who go downriver and encounter witchcraft, indigenous tribes, possession, and more. It's weird shit and a bit slow, but dazzling to look at. That sounds kind of cool. It's almost like a flipped, like kind of early, like deliverance or something. These oh, the yeah. 70s was chock full of these movies of like American man feeling disillusioned and kind of entering kind of this primordial time of like, you know, tr- you know, traditional indigenous culture, but also like kind of traditional Americana conflict. And uh, this kind of feels like a little bit of kind of hearkening to that sort of thing. I've never heard of this, but I got to say Shutter is a service, whether you subscribe just to Shutter like I do, or if you pay for, I believe, a amc plus which is like a channel on amazon that gives you shutter and i think other stuff too um shutters i've been fine i find that the shutter especially shutter canada has been getting a lot of really good kind of offbeat stuff i yeah. think uh 
Curtis had mentioned, I was listening last episode, he saw the uh, uh, 36 uh, uh, Kane's uh, Père Noël, you know, Deadly Games. He didn't like it as much, but like, I, I loved it. Like, I, I love seeing some of these more offbeat, little known kind of cult horrors that, you know, some of them are really schlocky and bad. You're like, God, I would never want to watch this with any loved one. Uh, but some of them are like kind of fun and you're like, wow, it's kind of cool to see these really inventive kind of lower budget films that no one's heard of or, or seen them do things that have maybe they're they've kind of become cult hits and they've been referenced and redone in sort of more popular work so it's kind of cool uh to see that that aspect of it which is why watching film is so great but uh yeah i'm definitely gonna have to check uh this that one out because that sounds pretty fun um quinn i know you didn't watch a lot did you want to share what you uh were able to watch uh this week yeah yeah i ended up watching like a couple of sort of like true crime documentaries but cool. Nothing really worth talking about. Uh, the one that stands out the most, I watched a documentary called The Ken and Barbie Killers on Discovery Plus, and it's about oh. Carla Mocha and that psycho Paul Bernardo. Yeah. Um, yeah, just basically their story, the psychos, but interesting documentary nonetheless. I just got Discovery Plus to add to oh. my subscription list. Uh, so yeah, I'm also in, I'm, I'm almost finished. Uh, in the mood for love on the criterion channel yeah. too so i'll definitely be talking about that uh next pod so oh, cool. yeah what about you john what do you what do you got uh what did you watch yeah so i wasn't here last week so i some of this was stuff i watched early last week and a little bit recently so i'll go chronologically so uh, the first thing i watched uh, last was a uh, bad trip which is the uh comedy film by eric andre which came out last year um it's uh, it, it, what can I say? This is directed by uh, Kateo Sakurai. It also stars a uh, uh, Lil Ray who plays his sort of best friend. Uh, Lil Ray's been the Carmichael show, and he's also was the uh, TSA, TSA agent in Get Out, a uh, pretty popular role for him. And his sister is played by Tiffany Haddish. In this movie, uh, just to describe it, is it, sort of a lot like that bad grandpa jackass movie where, where they sort of like took sort of the jackass formula of like, you know, pranks and stunts, but kind of tie it around this sort of actual narrative story with these like characters from the, the, the jackass skits. And they did the story, but they kind of filmed it with real people in real settings. This movie is like that, but way better. And holy shit, I laughed so hard. I, I haven't seen a movie this funny and probably since like pop star, like I haven't laughed like that, that movie and Popstar are probably the most I've laughed this decade. Like this is one of the best comedies I've seen in years. And holy shit, this is so funny and so well done. It's um, what's great about it is again, it's taking that formula, but it's a little bit, you know, whereas I found like uh, Bad Grandpa was a little bit more kind of like punching down, mean spirited. It's sort of like humor at people's expense. This one actually has like a lot of heart to it. And it works as sort of this, Gen, gen generic pretty goofy like kind of road movie it's sort of uh eric andre and his buddy eric andre encounters um this like old girl that he used to know from high school who's beautiful and she comes into this like shake shop she he works at and he sees her and he talks to la ray he's like we gotta go see her she's like across the, i think she's up uh, i can't remember they're they're in florida they have to go up to new york and uh they're like we're gonna have to borrow your sister's car tiffany had just his, his, his um Little Ray's sister, she's in prison in jail, federal prison. They take her car and drive away, but we find out that she actually breaks out of prison, goes to find the car, and they're like, the car is gone. And and then she goes on this big quest to kind of go after them to presumably kill them. And oh my God, some of the skits, in the, I was laughing so hard. The opening one where Eric Andre is like working at the shop and actually like sucks up his own clothes and he's naked. I was, and there's this whole, I don't want to spoil all the fucking pranks and shit, but there's like, there's a sequence where like there's this whole like fucking like musical number in the small and like i couldn't believe like some of the stuff they did like i was watching a little bit of the behind the scenes stuff and like almost every uh skit or prank they did they did like 
five or six scenes. I think there's a there's an argument to make that maybe some of it's a little bit made up because it's it's so perfect. Like there's a, my fate. One of the best ones is when Tiffany Haddish breaks out of prison and she she's runs out of the prison bus. And there's this guy who's like cleaning graffiti off the wall and she sees him. He's like, there's a cop coming after me. And he's like, he's like, will you like if he comes around, will you like will you lie or whatever? And he's just like, yes, I will. Or whatever. like he just buys it and the cop shows up. And he's like and he's like trying to give directions to the cop. He's like, yeah, go there. But he's like, he's it's I was I was it's so funny like I, I cannot believe how fucking funny this was I love Eric Andre if you know him from the Eric Andre yeah. show total awesome like Gonzo style uh you know like a comedian and I got he's so it's such a great film like I laughed so hard like I I honestly don't want to talk too much because like you really have to I gotta see, it. see this I gotta it's, see this one I I was like crying laughing like I could not believe how how funny this movie was so great comedy one of the best I've seen in many years um also watched on Amazon Prime, the directorial debut by G- by David by Dave Franco, uh, the other Franco brother. Uh, this one's called The Rental. It's sort of this like little sort of um, kind of relationship drama horror about these these two couples. Um, um, both two of them are brothers and and they're partners and they go to this sort of Airbnb, um, this beautiful location. And then you know scary shit happens. Uh, pretty good cast. You know it's Dave Franco, so of course it stars his wife Allison Brie and she's in and she plays a. Uh, um, the spouse of one of the the brothers and you know she's really good in it and it's the movie was pretty funny but um it kind of just felt a little bit rushed like i felt like visually it looked flat like again it had like that sort of digital sheen where everything kind of looks gray and washed out and you know they're they're going on like wow it's so beautiful this like like you know airbnb spot and it's like it all looks like muddy shit i'm like i don't know it looks all pretty pretty goofy to me and a lot of that this is pretty much just like relationship drama the characters themselves are terrible i love how jeremy allen white's in this and he plays lip and shameless and he basically just plays lip in everything where he's like this like you know sulking like hot masculine guy who's like got issues and like every woman just like loves him like i just love that time that's like every him and everything now uh but yeah i didn't think it was that good but um it's also it's very mumblecore like it's i think uh produced by uh joe swanberg so it's you know feels out of like the the bomb back canon or whatever it's sort of like a, one of these mumble gore movies they're kind of offbeat um horrors but are you know kind of done indie style so um if you're into like mumble gore or mumblecore type movies you might like this but it wasn't really my thing i did watch because i've i've never seen any of the Hannibal stuff i wanted to start from the beginning i watched michael mann's manhunter holy fuck what a great movie um maybe one of the best i've seen this year incredible film um visually it's it's just god it looks so i love michael mann as the director he's one of the best definitely gonna have to do a watch series about him because he makes some incredible movies and this is one of his best a total visual feast the first five minutes of this look better than fucking any scene in the rental um william peterson (laughs) plays uh, will graham this fbi detective who's been enlisted to track down this killer called the tooth fairy who's the sort of nickname the tooth fairy who's this killer that's breaking into people's houses. I think this movie is actually, it's based on the novel Red Dragon. They were going to call the movie Red Dragon, but uh, I think the Dino De Laurentiis was like, no, let's call it uh, something that would be more appealing at the time. There's a lot of goofy like Kung Fu ripoffs and stuff. So they call it Manhunter, which is a, one of the worst titles you could give it because it just sounds like a generic shitty action movie. But God, this is like a deep philosophical, amazing movie. Um, Brian Cox, you know, from Succession fame, you know, is Logan. He plays Dr. Hannibal Lecter in this and he's great. I mean, he's not really a big figure in this film, but oh God, I just thought, the movie was so interesting. You could see its influence. I mean, William Peterson himself, like he's basically, this is like him doing a dry run for like what he would do on like CSI and stuff like that. Uh, and God, he's like, you know, he was into live and die in LA. Like how was William Peterson not a bigger star? Like good looking, incredible actor, 
like super charismatic, great, really watchable. And then, you know, the story is really about kind of investing, the theme of this is really about kind of the blend between like, you know, investigator and the investigated and sort of like, you know, fixation on psychopathy and sort of trauma, like how you can kind of get entangled in that and be kind of, where does where are the lines demarcated between the active participants in violence and psychopathy and the people who obsess over them and and look after them and is there sort of a blend there and an identity um really great performances incredible cast the movie i, I mean i haven't seen sounds of the lambs but it has a lot to live up to because god manhunter was amazing so um really loved it um different different movie but all kind of coincidentally starring anthony hopkins i watched the uh 2020 film the father which oh god prepare to cry like it's a pretty sad film if you've seen I started it, it actually for some reason i i turned it off and i never ended up finishing it i i forgot about it yeah it's about uh this father that's um being taken care by his daughter, his daughter played by Olivia Coleman, and we find out um, it's not really a spoiler, but early on we see that he's suffering through uh, dementia and he's starting to lose his memories, and it's sort of the film sort of tracks his progress. It's very disturbing to watch. Um, I love how like morally ambiguous a lot of the characters are. Like I don't want to spoil everything, but like it's not like one of these movies where like everyone is great until they're not. Like there's a lot of interactions with the characters where you're like everyone in this movie is dealing with trauma and they're not all like there's no like really good character i, I just thought it was so realistic and got anthony hopkins he won the oscar for this and people were a little bit upset because i think he won it over chadwick boseman but it, he was so good in this and especially the ending like i was i was i was crying it was so emotional and like uh i just thought the editing on this was good the other yorgos yorgos lamprinos did the editing and it's it shot so well like it's so the film is like a little puzzle because it's playing around with space and time and you know characters go into a room and it's different and you don't really know it's based i believe on a stage play and i would be cool i could see like watching this on stage might have been pretty cool to watch because i could imagine them playing around with with sets and shots when things aren't going on and yeah i was really i don't know if i ever rewatched this because it was so emotionally draining but it was an incredible performance very i i went into this thinking it was going to be kind of like a a melodrama but it's actually kind of like a horror movie so i think i think it has a lot more of disturbing horror chops than i think people would expect so i i was i thought it was disturbing but very uh powerful and emotional uh to watch and then you know i was feeling in a silly goofy mood so we uh we watched uh the first austin powers movie austin powers international man of mystery uh man this holds up so well like i think it's cool because you know austin powers the first one and the later ones are such obvious like callbacks to parodying sort of 1960s obviously like James Bond spy films but just 60s kind of social norms writ large with Austin Powers this sort of like Roger Moore meets like Jerry Lewis type figure and you know Mike Myers is god he's such a he's such a king of comedy like he's just you know peak humor to Mike Myers is like a man standing at the front of a dance trope like doing goofy dances like he just uh, this is such like a gay camp move like Austin Powers is just like this fabulous guy who's just dancing and he's like every girl's like best friend it's it's pretty campy like I just think it's it's so colorful it looks great like it's so funny all these kind of mid-tier 90s movies that we kind of wrote, wrote, wrote off when we were younger like now that everything's shot digitally and looks terrible you rewatch these 90s films you're like god they look great like this film looks better than like any movie coming out now I'm like yeah. god it looks it's shot really well and I think the script in it's super funny it's fun looking at it now it's sort of like a throwback to a specific type of like 90s comedy of like people reacting to this goof goofy lead of course you know in this case uh mike myers we don't really get movies like this anymore uh today but yeah it holds up pretty well like it's it's just so super fun to watch super quotable like there's so many lines in this that i know like this would probably be on my canon because like i could quote like this goddamn entire movie uh, dr evil i mean he's great like don't look at me like i'm freaking frankenstein <laughs> chasing after his son and i like i love visually like the evil layer like everything's silver and drab and blue like i think the, the movie is visually looks quite good Good. and yeah. um and yeah it's and elizabeth hurley i'm looking respectfully great role great performance in this and what else did i watch i watched um 
watch a little bit of Criterion. I didn't watch too much, but I watched, uh, I was watching through some of the, they had this collection, Hitchcock, Hitchcock for the Holidays, sort of a collection yes. of early to latter Hitchcock films. So I watched one of his earlier ones, The Lodger, which is one, it's a 1920 silent film. Um, it's pretty good. I mean, it's a, it's a silent film. So the thing, the problem with silent films for better, for worse, is like, you have to pay attention. Cause like, it's, you're just hearing music. You're really, it's, it's visually what you're looking for. Um, characters interacting and then of course title cards and stuff like that so if you're just like on your phone you're going to be like what the hell i'm totally lost so uh, but i watched it and i actually really enjoyed it it certainly has a little bit of a hitchcocky hitchcockian this to it where this kind of guest this lodger is living in this house and and meets this young woman and it plays around with this killer it's obviously inspired by like jack the ripper um i thought the performances were pretty good i mean it's not like the best um hitchcock but it's really cool to watch his really early works where you can really see his obvious sort of visual style and a lot of sort of the themes he deals with sort of like crime and 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 thrillers and stuff like that it's cool to see kind of the, the early works of that like uh, this could have been not called hitchcock but people would have watched this and been like holy shit it's really good so it's cool to see you know someone who came from that period of time of the transition from silence to sound and then you know transitioned successfully to to this day is one of the most beloved directors um you know for his works in the you know in the 40s through to the 60s so um really great really really solid movie um i also watched one that was pretty bad i we kind of just like stopped watching it's called season of the witch it's uh, stars nicholas cage ron perlman it's about this like i i the story is like the crusades and there's like a witch involved. I, I tuned out like five minutes in. Cause like it's, it's showing you this horrific crusades battle of like innocent people being slaughtered. And we get like cage and Pearlman who are doing like the Gimli Legolas bit. It's like, I'll take the 300 on the left. You take the 300 on the right. And I was just like, I'm out. I can't. It's terrible. The movie sucked. Um, but yeah, I, I sort of watched it, I guess. Watched some stuff last night, but I think I'll talk about it next week. Cause I haven't really totally thought about it, but uh, yeah, um, it was fun. I'm glad we get to talk about uh, the fog. So our oh, next watch series on Carpenter, I think is going to be escape from New York. I'm super stoked because I, I think, I don't know if I've ever, I think I've seen a little bit of escape from New York, but I've never watched the whole thing start to finish. And it's a, one of the classic carpenters we're starting, we're getting now we're in the eighties. We're like, right at like the the heart of the lineup it's just like banger after banger this one escape from new york the yep. thing christine like we're getting some really good carpenter ones coming oh. so excited to talk about them especially the thing like that one is going to be like uh i don't know should talk one. about one yeah yeah um yeah. and we're also i think next episode we might do a personal canon uh series i think uh quinn you might be watching we might be watching one of your favorites we haven't decided yet i don't think which uh which one we're doing but uh once we figure that out, we'll watch it and that'll be coming next week. And we'll be, we'll be going back and forth between those in our regular watch series and, and maybe doing some, uh, you know, other, other movies we want to do or talk about our favorite car chase films. That's going to be coming um, probably in a few weeks. So a lot of fun stuff coming up ahead. Anything you want to mention or plug uh, Quinn uh, before we wrap up? Yeah. Uh, just check out my Instagram uh, at seat struck reviews. I'm cool. going to be putting up some more reviews uh, this coming week. So yeah, just be on the look for that. But other than that, yeah, just uh, thanks for listening. And yeah. What about you, John? What do you got? Sure. Um, not much. I mean, uh, of course I always plug my uh, podcast domestic pints only where we drink and rate and review beer. We're, we're coming up on a milestone episode 50 soon. So we're planning a little special episode there, but we're doing some, uh, craft spotlights we did an episode with curtis who's on this podcast we did one talking uh uh Braumeister brewing company which is in carlton place they are they opened a new location in ottawa near where i live so uh we did an episode with curtis talking about, about that one which just dropped as of uh as of this thursday so we've got some more stuff coming up but uh yeah other than that i think uh, we'll see you all again next week and uh if you see any scary fog uh creeping in you know maybe close your windows or something don't let it in um and we'll see you all we'll see you all next week take care everyone See you guys.